Washington, and we're going to continue uh, with the worship of the Word. So if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you're taking notes this morning, there in your bulletin, you'll find a little outline for today's sermon. I've entitled it, In the Beginning Was the Word. In the beginning was the word. We're in John 1. I'm going to read 1 through 5, but I think Brad already hinted to you this morning we're only going to get through verses 1 and 2, all right? Unless you want to stay here till like 2 o'clock, all right? So we're going to get through verses 1 and 2, but let me read the first five verses of the prologue, which is actually verses 1 through 18 of the Gospel of John. Here, John writes, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning, and we praise you that you are our God. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son, who is light in the life of men. We thank you for the joy this morning of understanding even deeper what it means when the scriptures say, in the beginning was the word. And so I pray that today, God, you would open up our minds. For those of us who've maybe heard this verse or this text preached before, would you help us to be refreshed in the truths of this great passage? God, for those of us maybe for the first time have never actually heard a whole sermon on John 1.1, I pray, God, that it would be enlightening to us, and it would be transforming our hearts and our lives to worship the Lord Jesus Christ as God. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in the first verses of this great gospel, John answers one of the, the many questions that you might ask of somebody if you're meeting them for the first time. You know, if you meet somebody brand new, you're going to ask, you know, what is your name? You might ask, what, what do you do for a living? Depending on your age, you may ask, are you married or do you have any kids? And, uh, you know, if they have a funny accent, you might say, where are you from? Where are you from, by the way? And so those are just normal questions that we're going to ask to somebody if you're meeting them for the first time. And here in the prologue of John, John answers that last question, where are you from? He answers that question with respect to Jesus. John tells us, in a sense, where Jesus is from. That's what this prologue is all about. The, the New Testament uses many titles for Jesus. The, the one that occurs most frequently is the word Christos or the word Christ. In fact, it's used so often throughout the New Testament that a new believer or even a child would say, is, is Christ Jesus' last name? Be honest. How many of you guys thought that at one point in your life? You thought... Jesus is the first name, Christ is the second. You're not being honest. You're not being honest. So, I mean, the idea is that's what we think until you realize, oh, Christos is a title. It means the anointed one. It means the Messiah. Christ is not his last name. It's a title for who Jesus is. He is the Christ. And so that word Christos is the most common title that points to Jesus and even to his divinity. The second most common title that's used in the Bible to point to Jesus is the word uh, master or the word Lord. Okay? It's the word when we say the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the word Lord means master. It's constantly used in the Old Testament to refer specifically to Yahweh. And therefore, the usage of the word Lord, the word curios, in the original language, the, the, the usage of that word Lord in the New Testament gives further evidence of Jesus' divinity. So the fact that we use the word Christ, the fact that the Bible uses the word Lord, are two huge markers to the deity of Christ. The third most frequent title for Jesus in the New Testament is the Son of Man. That would be the third most common title. In fact, that's the way that Jesus prefers to refer to himself frequently throughout the Gospels. He will refer to himself as the Son of Man. And any good Jew who's read their Old Testament would know immediately that that's also a pointer to the Messiah as it's used by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there was one who came like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before 
him. And so there's a little bit of Hebrew culture going on there, Hebrew awareness of Hebrew um, you know, books of the Bible, but that's a clear pointer, son of man, to the Messiah. So Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, and describing himself in the son of man not only describes his activity, but it also describes his origin. He's telling his readers where he was from. Now John chooses to do this using a different title altogether. It's the title Word. It's going to be the title, title Logos, and that's what we're going to get into here in just a moment. But what I want to ask you, if I can, I want to pause just for a minute and ask you a question in light of this, and the question is simply this, where are you from? Like, where are you from, really? Like, what was your pre-existence? Did you exist in eternity past? Like, where are you from? Not so much in the sense of geographically, what state did you grow up in, but this morning I want to ask you, where are you from? Where are you today? Where, where are you before God? I mean, how did you get here? Were you created or did you arrive by accident? Did you come to planet Earth in a perfect sinless condition or as a reprobate sinner in need of forgiveness? Where are you today? Where are you from as a human being? And I just want to say to you this morning, if, if you're here and you're like, man, I come from a rough past or I come from a difficult life, or I've had a really challenging week, and I've just been really distracted this week, this sermon, while it's going to be focusing on pristine theology of the divinity of Christ, still applies to you because you can't know where you're from unless you know where Jesus is from. You can't get to where Jesus is unless you understand who he was in eternity past, who he is in the present, and who he will be for all time. And your origin and your destiny determines on your understanding of who is Jesus Christ. So there's some sermons that lend themselves to a lot of application. It's just easy to think about. And there's some sermons that are just heavy hitters. Theologically, and this will be a heavy hitter theologically, but you know what? It's important that we build a firm foundation on this first verse of John 1 1. So, I want, what I want to do is give you four truths. We're just going to get to the first one this morning as we learn a little bit from these first five verses about, about the beginning, about the Word becoming flesh. So, let me just give you the first truth if I can. Number one, it's there in your outline, is Jesus is God. You might be thinking, duh, Adam, that's why I'm at church. I already believe that. Why do you have to make that statement? It's, you, you know, it, because there are many who are confused on this truth that Jesus is God. And that's why John takes some time here in the prologue, and he begins to establish the fact that Jesus is God. In fact, your first blank, if you are taking notes, says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. That's what the first part of verse 1 says. And so let me just say here, in the very beginning, I'm going to put all my cards on the table. Uh, the reason that we know that Jesus is God and the word word refers to Christ is, is because of what the text continues to go on and say in verse 14. So while we'll only look at verse 1 and verse 2 this morning, skip down to verse 14, and there it, it couldn't be more clear. And the Word became flesh... And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there it is, the cat's out of the bag. There's nothing being hidden here about who is the Logos, and is this first verse really saying, I know it's saying the Word is God, but is Jesus the Word? And according to verse 14, you really have no way out of that box. Yes, Jesus is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory and that He is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so let me just say here in 1-1 that the opening to the prologue of John's gospel is profound. A prologue serves as a proper introduction, kind of like the, the, the opening space of a building, sometimes called the narthex, or the foyer. In the south, we call it the foyer, all right? And, and uh, that is an introduction to a building. So when you walk into a brand new building, whether it be a church, whether it be your house, whether it be the mall or a movie theater or wherever you go, you walk into the narthex. You walk into the foyer. You walk into that opening area of a house, and it's supposed to do two things. It's supposed to first grab your attention as this is a beautiful building, and then it also gives a little bit of an idea of what you'll see throughout the building. So it's supposed to grab your attention like, wow, look at this incredible building. It's so beautiful. And then it's supposed to also be designed in such a way 
and decorated in such a way as what you see in the foyer, you'll also see as you walk through the house. That's a tip for some of you decorators out there, okay? So the idea is, is that here in the entrance to the Gospel of John, that, that this is a beautiful foyer. It's not only designed by a divine architect, but this book also has a divine decorator who makes an impression that is so majestic upon the reader that it's going to cause us this morning to say, wow, check out the beginning of John. It's, it's not only robust in its theology, but it's just beautiful. It's incredibly personal to see here and understand about the word who became flesh. Here, even in the beginning of this verse 1, it has a poetic structure where in the original language, if you were just to read the nouns, it would say, word, word, God, God, word. So I know that may not mean a lot to you, but as a, as a Greek scholar, that I'm not, but, uh, but the idea would be that there's a poetic meter and emphasis in establishing what John wants to establish here. It's, it's beautiful, but it's also robust. And what I mean by that is, if you, you guys know we live in L.A., right? So you have all the movie sets, and how many of you guys have ever seen maybe a movie set where the front of the buildings of the house are all fake? And maybe from the front, when you look at it, you're like, oh, that's a massive structure. And then you kind of go around to the side, and it's like paper thin. You know, it's like a foot thick. How many of you guys have seen that? You, that that's not this, all right? This is not only beautiful. When you see it from the front, you're like, that's awesome, but when you go around the side, you see the full building. This is the real deal. This is not a movie set. This isn't a facade. John is for real as he wants to get started in teaching us about the amazing beauty and the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the beginning was the word. I want to give you three things I want you to think about with that first clause. All right. The first clause is this. Uh, in the beginning was the word. The first thing I want you to think about is notice the absence of a genealogy. I told you last week in the introduction to the book that there's certain things that John includes that the synoptic gospels don't include. It's just amazing. But there's also certain things that John omits where the synoptic gospels include. So you'll have to reference last week's sermon for that. But the idea here is it's kind of amazing that at the beginning of such a profound prologue, there is no genealogy whatsoever. Matthew traces the genealogy from Jesus to Abraham as Matthew was trying to show that Jesus was a Jew. He was the anointed one. He, was, he is the Messiah. He is Israel's ultimate king. Remember, Matthew is depicting Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah to the Hebrew people. And so he gives a, a genealogy. Luke also traces the genealogy from Jesus all the way to Adam. And if you remember, Luke is attempting to demonstrate Jesus to the Greeks as the perfect man. So Luke, as a Gentile, is writing to Gentiles, showing that Jesus really is the perfect man all the way back to Adam, that Jesus has a biological and a legal right to the throne of David. Mark moves so fast, remember I told you it's the ADD gospel, it moves so fast that he doesn't take time for a genealogy, rather Mark starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just gets right into the good news of Jesus Christ and he's off to the races. Now while we see those other three books, the synoptics, two of them that don't give a genealogy, one starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ, notice where John starts. He doesn't start with the gospel of Jesus Christ, he starts in the beginning, like the beginning beginning, like Genesis 1-1, like in the beginning was the word. In fact, that's to be distinguished from where John goes in 1 John. Turn with me to 1 John, if you will. We know that, again, the Apostle John wrote the Gospel. He wrote these three epistles, wrote the, the book of Revelation. And in the end of your Bible, there in 1 John, he also references a comment about in the beginning. Notice what it says in 1 John 1.1. 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the what? The word of life. In 1 John, when he says the beginning, he's not talking about Genesis 1-1. He's talking about the beginning of Christ on the earth. He's talking about the beginning of the gospel, kind of like what Mark talks about. But when you're here in the gospel of John, just to distinguish the two, the gospel of John goes all the way back to the very beginning beginning, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, why does he start there? Because in the beginning, it's before any genealogy. 
John doesn't need to establish a genealogy because that's not his point. His point is it to somehow connect to Abraham, like Matthew wanted to, or to connect to Adam, like Luke wanted to. His point was to simply to show, I want to go back before that, like in the beginning, before there were people, before there were genealogies, Jesus was. The word has always been, and he always will be. And so that's why John goes all the way back to the very beginning. And get this, Jesus didn't start with Adam. Jesus didn't start with Abraham. In fact, Jesus never started. It's the whole point of the verse that he is eternal because Jesus is God. Now, the second point I want to make about that first clause is this. Let's look at the meaning of the logos. The meaning of the logos we've talked about in the beginning was the word, and that's the word logos in the Greek, okay? The word logos. I'm sure you've heard that if you've been in church at all in your life. You've probably known that a little bit. So the word logos could be translated as word. It could be translated as speech. It could be translated as message. It could be translated as book. In fact, BDAG, the world's leading uh, Greek uh, lexicon, defines logos as, quote, a communication whereby the mind finds expression. And so, if you will, the word of the Lord is the expression of the Lord. It's his speech. What goes out, he speaks the world into existence. And so there's a little bit of a connection there with the idea of how this word logos is used throughout the Bible. In his commentary on John, R.C. Sproul writes this, quote, the first 18 verses of John's gospel are commonly known as the prologue. No portion of the New Testament captured the imagination and the attention of the Christian intellectual community for the first three centuries more than this brief section of John's gospel. In attempting to understand the person of Christ, the early church became virtually preoccupied with the high view of Christ that is expressed in the prologue. From the foundation, those early believers developed what is called Logos Christology. In other words, this interlinking connection that the Logos is Christ. Understanding Christ is the Word. Okay? So it's interesting that John should call Jesus the Word. We might go back to some of the introductory material. Why, why did John choose the word Word? I mean, we talked about the most common word would have been the word Christos. The second most common word would have been the word Kurios. The third most common word was the Son of Man. And so where does the word Logos come up in titles for Jesus? Why did John pick to use the Logos as a title for Jesus Christ, a description of his very being? Well, I would like to answer that question, you know, here in a moment. But first, let me just... Uh, take another moment and say, you know what? He, he could have opened the gospel using any of Jesus's I am statements. I mean, there's seven I am statements that are pretty clear about Jesus's divinity. Why didn't he use one of those? He could have given Jesus uh, one of the titles elsewhere found in scripture that are given to God. He could have just declared the incommunicable attributes of God are also uniquely seen in Jesus Christ. He could have started off saying that Jesus can do the works that only the Father can do. John could have uh, had Jesus receive worship as evidence of his divinity but John, and only John, gives this incredible reference to Jesus as the Word. And that's what we're asking. Why? Why Jesus as the Word? Well, I, I believe that the answer lies in the fact that the Word of the Lord, that phrase, the Word of the Lord, was a significant Old Testament theme that would have been well known to the Jews. Any Jew who read their Old Testament knows that the expression, the word of the Lord, is found throughout. The word of the Lord was the expression of divine power and wisdom. It was by his word that God introduced the Abrahamic covenant. It was by his word that the Lord gave Israel the Ten Commandments. It was by his word that God attended the building of Solomon's temple. It was by his word that God revealed himself to Samuel. It was by his word that God counseled with Elijah. It was by his word that God directed Israel through the prophets. In fact, the Bible records that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I mean, the word of the Lord shows up everywhere as the Old Testament prophet receiving the word of the Lord. It, it was the prophet Isaiah who wrote in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the what? word of the Lord stands forever. It's forever. 
You see, John presented Jesus to his Jewish readers as the incarnation of divine power and revelation. The fact that that John personifies the word of the Lord in the person of Christ shows this incredible divinity of this word now becoming flesh and living among us. But the word logos was not just a Hebrew concept. The logos appealed both to Jews and Greeks alike. You see, to the Greek philosophers, the word, the logos, was the impersonal, abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. So Philo, different philosophers, talk about the word as being like the supreme source of wisdom and authority in all of the universe. The Greeks would have understood the logos in the same sense of some type of creative force. The Greeks would have understood the logos as a source of wisdom. Even the common layman would have understood that the term would have identified one of the most important principles in all the universe. To the Greeks then, John presented Jesus as the personification of the logos. Jesus was the embodiment of the word. Jesus was not an impersonal idea, force, power, or principle. In Jesus, the true logos was God becoming a man, a concept which was foreign to Greek thought and frankly confusing to the Hebrew mindset as well. So why did he choose the word logos? He's, a, he's appealing to the Hebrew mindset that would have understood this is God's expression This is divine power and wisdom, and it's personified in Jesus. Why did he use the word logos for the Greek? They would have said, well, this is supreme authority. This is is the source of wisdom. This is is an incredible, uh, high, uh, respected word communicating power of the universe. And this all comes together in the person of Christ. This all comes together in the person of Jesus Christ. So as John is writing to Jews and Gentiles and trying to to, uh, to get them to believe in the Son of God and to see the love of God, then he chooses to begin by pointing to Jesus as the Logos. Okay? One last thing I want to say about this first clause, again, we're still looking at in the beginning was the word, is number three, the significance of the verb amen. If you haven't got enough Greek, I've got to give you a little bit more, and I apologize, I'm not really a Greek scholar myself, but um, I'm just going to give it to you, okay? The significance of the verb eimi, E-I-M-I. The verb eimi is the Greek verb for was. So when it says, in the beginning was the word, it's the word eimi. In, in the beginning, this word eimi uh, is used in the imperfect tense, which is describing a continuing action in the past. This tense is specifically pointing to the eternal pre-existence of the word. And so it's not like in the beginning, then Jesus shows up and starts doing his thing. It's saying, no, in the beginning, Jesus already was. He was already doing his thing because Jesus is God. He existed from eternity past, and he will exist into eternity future. And so John uses this imperfect tense of the verb to show that Jesus was continuously in existence before the beginning. Even more significant is the use of me that he uses instead of the verb genomai. He could have used the word genomai, which was the word became. Genomai, or became, would refer to things that come into existence. So he could have made a heretical statement and said, in the beginning, uh, Jesus became the word. That would have been wrong because Jesus didn't become anything. He already was. That's the significance of using the word me that stresses that the word already existed. There was never a point when Jesus came into being. You say, Adam, why are you making a big deal about this? Because church history and modern day cults attack this to no end. They are good, godly people who have been raised and taught in good, solid Christian homes who later in life leave the Trinitarian doctrine and the divinity of Jesus Christ because I believe they never had a good, solid foundation understanding the exclusivity of the divinity of Christ, which is taught nowhere better than here in John 1.1. So that's why I'm taking a little bit of time to make sure you have a firm foundation. In fact, one of our elders just told me this morning that one of his buddies from Grace Community Church that he grew up with recently walked away from a Trinitarian doctrine. 
raised in, under one of the best teachers of the Bible uh, in the modern day world, who just recently said, yeah, I don't really think Jesus was God. And he's like, how can you say that? And he's been deceived. He's been led astray. So it could happen to you. I'm trying to make sure that we don't have one of our members, one of our people here at Placerita, who would one day just say, yeah, I don't think that's a big deal. Jesus being God? No, I don't think that's true. No, it is true. And this is what God's word says. And so let's spend a little time here on verse 1 talking about it. The second clause of verse 1 is B in your outline. And that is, the word was with God. The word was with God. Now, in the original language, this says proston theon. In the English translation, it doesn't quite bring out all the, the perspective here of what's going on. And, and I want to give it to you this way. Number one, three comments about this second clause would be this. This describes two personal beings facing each other. Now, when he says again, the word was with God, he's not just casually saying in the beginning was the word and there was the word with God. The, 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 the preposition pros means toward. So it doesn't just mean they were with, like casually hanging out together, though that was happening. There, there is a perspective that could be seen here. They're facing one another. It gives a mental picture of two individuals facing each other. As one translator suggested, the English version could say that they were with each other face to face. Another theologian suggests, suggests this, quote, This gives the picture of two personal beings facing one another and engaging in intelligent discourse, close quote. And that's that's a pretty profound observation. This isn't just Jesus and God were in the beginning. It's saying, no, they might have even been facing each other in a divine conversation from eternity past. Oh, to, to hear the conversation of the Father and the Son in eternity past. What do you think they were talking about? If they were together in perfect fellowship, certainly there was communication going on between the two. It's not like they're two stoic persons of the deity just sitting there for all eternity until the world was created. They were talking. They were spending time in rich fellowship together as an eternal Father and as an eternal Son. What do you think they were talking about? Could they have been discussing the creation of the world? Could they have been discussing the plan of redemption? Could they have been discussing uh, the mysteries of eternity future? Do you think maybe they were discussing the 2016 election? (laughs) What were they talking about? I think the, the Gospel of John gives us a hint on what they were talking about in John 17. Turn with me to John 17, and let's look for just a moment at the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. In John 17, this is Jesus, God the Son, praying to God the Father. Okay? And in John 17, 22, this is what we read. The glory that you had given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I think those three verses give us a little indication that it is possible that if the Father was facing the Son, and if the Son was facing the Father from all eternity past, that they could have been talking about things like this, the glory of God, the plan of redemption, the fact that, that together we're one in Christ, the gospel, the idea of, of, of the, 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 uh, the, the Jesus dwelling in us and that we dwell in him, his nature, right, permeates into our hearts and our lives, that the idea that there's a perfect love that was existing before the foundation of the world between the Father and the Son and this perfect love is also to exist in the church and believers in Christ. It's just amazing to think about the depth and the richness of this second clause, which again simply says, and the word was with God. They were together. They were having holy conversation. The second observation I want to make about the second clause, number two, is this. They were obviously having deep, intimate fellowship. They were having deep, intimate fellowship. The fellowship of God the Father and God the Son was never strained. 
you know, there's times when a father and son may argue over something and have a difference, and they begin to, you know, butt ends together. But the idea here is that God the Father and God the Son, they were never opposed to each other. They were always in perfect harmony. The Father was never bossy or harsh with the Son. The Son was always kind and respectful to the Father. The Father loved His Son with a perfect love. The Son wanted nothing more than to obey His Father's will. The Father's glory is on display in sending us His Son. And the Father's glory is on display in protecting His Son until that moment to which it had been determined that the Son would give His life as a ransom for sinners. I don't think Jesus was clueless about His mission to earth, right? Jesus knew full well what He came to do. And could it be that the Father and the Son discussed this plan of redemption over and over again from eternity past, Jesus knew that he was going to the cross. He swept drops of blood. Jesus went through great agony of being abandoned by his father on the cross when the father turned his back on his son. All of this shows, again, there was a deep, intimate fellowship. And part of the reason that the cross is so profound is how could this, this togetherness be separated by a plan i.e. the plan of redemption, which would then accomplish something even more beautiful as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship then invite you into that circle of fellowship, not that you become part of the Trinity or become a God, but that you become an adopted son or daughter of the kingdom, that you too one day will be with God. What an amazing thing to think that you will be face to face with Almighty God. And so there's a lot of incredible thinking here about the beauty of Jesus and God being together. Intimate, deep fellowship. Do you have that in your life through Christ? Are you experiencing deep, intimate fellowship? Are you having one-on-one time with God in a way that you want to talk about your marriage, and you want to talk about raising your kids, and you want to talk with him about that which is heavy on your heart, you want to commune with him knowing that he's the source of wisdom and truth, are you having that kind of communion with God? Of course, we can't have it at the same degree Jesus is, that Jesus is God, but certainly there's something here that would cause us just to stop for a moment and be like, wow, what's it like to be with God? The third point I want to make about the second clause is obviously I think this leads to an incredible willingness to humble himself. We ought to admire this willingness. Jesus Jesus had a a willingness to leave this safe place, to leave this fellowship with God, to come to planet Earth, right? In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, what theologians call the kenosis passage, which is about Jesus humbling himself and giving up this fellowship, at least for a season in some degree or another, when he came to earth. Here's, here's what it says, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind amongst, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So for Jesus to go from this being with God to emptying himself, again, that word emptying himself does not mean he emptied himself of divine attributes. It does not mean that he emptied himself from being God. It just simply means for a season he chose not to execute all of his divine attributes in the way that he could have. He chose to, if you will, just push pause on, on fulfilling all of the kinds of things he could have done. He said, you know what? I'm going to be, I'm still God. So I'm not trying to confuse you here. I'm still 100% God, even while I'm a man. But I am, in a sense, you have to still deal with this passage, right? He is, in a sense, humbling himself, emptying himself by taking on human form, by becoming a sacrifice, by being your substitute. That is a very humbling thing to think of the glory by which Christ had at the very beginning that he would even leave heaven, in a sense, and come down to earth. Notice how in John 10, look at John 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says this, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life and I take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Well, according to that passage, part of the reason God loves Jesus is that Jesus was willing to lay down his life. Jesus was willing to leave this deep, intimate fellowship by humbling himself through the incarnation and through the crucifixion and through the resurrection in order to accomplish salvation, which likely God the Father and God the Son discussed in eternity past. And so we learn here that our Lord Jesus Christ is a person distinct from God the Father and yet one with him. It was J.C. Ryle who wrote in his expository comments on the Gospel of John, he wrote this, quote, The Father and the Word, two persons, they are joined by an ineffable union. Where God the Father was from all eternity, there was also the Word, even God the Son. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal, and yet their Godhead one. This is a great Mystery. Happy is he who can receive it as a little child without attempting to explain it. Well, I love that reminder. That's what it's like with our kids. We have five kids. We have gone through the labor of explaining to each one of them the Trinity. And it's like your kids just kind of look at you like, so is, is Jesus God? Is, is, but God, so is there one God? Or is, there, is there three gods? The Holy Spirit? Where is Jesus? You know, I'm like, I don't know. Just read it. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, all right? Jesus is God, yes. God is God, yes. The Holy Spirit is God. But there's just one God, but they're in three persons. And, and it's just this beautiful picture here in John 1, 1 of this glorious trinity of the Godhead that we serve. And then this really leads us to this third clause. And this is kind of the money portion of the verse, if I can say it that way. The word was God. But it's not clear enough in clause one. It's not clear enough in clause two. Here's the third clause of verse one. The word was God. Three comments I want to say about that. Number one, one of, this is one of the strongest statements of the divinity of Christ in all the Bible. John's description of the word reaches its highest point and defining moment here in the third clause of this opening verse. Not only did the word exist from the beginning, and not only did the word have a face-to-face -face relationship with God, the Father, but we see here that the word was God. Of course, Jesus claims to be God clearly throughout his gospel, but this is the first time with the most clarity that he claims that the word was God. Look at a couple of the other places where Jesus clearly claims to be God. Look at John 10. Turn with me to John 10, verse 30. We'll come right back to this first verse. But notice throughout the gospel how he continues to be on this rant about the fact that I and the Father are one. John 10, verse 30, that's exactly what he says. I and the Father are one. Well, in case you think that's not clear enough, the Pharisees wanted to kill him for saying that. If you skip down to verse 36 of John 10, it says, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? They were uh, accusing Jesus of blasphemy because he said, I and the Father are one. And so in verse 36, he says, are, are you saying that, 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 the, that, uh, that you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Well, there's a second statement he's saying with clarity. I said, I and the Father are one, and I also said, I am the Son of God. The third statement of clarity is found in verse 38, Verse 38, it says, But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. I mean, nobody can say that unless you're saying you're one. You, you, you can't say that you're in the Father in the same way Jesus means it here when he says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So throughout the Gospel of John, he states to be God. Not only that, one of my other favorite verses, and there's more than we can look at, but Colossians 2.9. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him, in the person of Christ, in his body, 
the whole deity of God dwells in Christ. And so we see here, first of all, this is one of the strongest statements of the divinity of Christ. Second comment I want to make is the word was not a God. The word was not a God, small a and small g. Next, click on the PowerPoint. There it goes. The word was not a God. Despite the, the crisp clarity of this verse, heretical groups from church history and from the present try to twist John's words, and they try to twist John's meaning. The first such attempt to change the meaning of this verse was Arius, who began a dangerous and influential heresy which denied the divinity of Christ. Arianism, as it became called, maintained that the Son of God was created by the Father and was therefore neither co-eternal with the Father nor co-substantial. So in other words, this heresy of the early church, Arianism, stated that Jesus was a created being. Because of a misinterpretation of this verse, they began to say, hey, Jesus wasn't really always around. At some point, he showed up, which would have meant that he had to have been created. That's what Arianism taught. And so Arius believed that the Father and the Son were not of the same substance. A present-day heretical group, the Jehovah Witnesses, what we see around uh, this country is Kingdom Hall or Jehovah Witnesses, which began, by the way, in the late 1800s. I think there's about six to eight million Jehovah Witnesses in the United States. They believe that this verse should be translated as, quote, the word was a God. In fact, if you ever um, talk to a Jehovah's Witness at your door, they will go to town on this task trying to explain to you from the original language that, that, that we get the translation wrong and they have it right and it should say the word was a God. How, how many of you guys have ever had a conversation with a JW about that? Okay, almost half of you. Look at, look at you. Well, I'm about to get you ready. All right, Next conversation that you have with them, uh, this may be like above your pay grade in, a, in the sense that you haven't had a chance to be a true Greek scholar, and neither am I, by the way. But I do think that we have a responsibility as Christians to dig in just a little bit further on, instead of just saying to that JW, I have no idea what you're talking about. I believe John MacArthur. You know, uh, don't be like that. Just say, hey, I'll, I'll be happy to look at you, look at your version and what, what this text says. Let me try to simplify it for you the best I can. All right, I'm just going to take a stab at it. They say, the JWs say that because the word for God in this third clause, the word for God is theos, because this is an anarthrous word, which simply means it doesn't have an article. Because the word God doesn't have an article, what they're saying is that, that then the, the, the absence of the article means that the word theos should be translated as a, uh, as a, as a, as a I'm, look at me, I'm just stumbling all over the place. I'm trying to make it simple. I'm trying to cut out some stuff in my notes, and you're like, just say it, Adam, just say it. All right. <laughs> because there's not an article pointing at God, they would say it should be translated as a God. But in Greek grammar, if you know anything about Greek grammar, both logos and theos, the word word and the word God, both of them are in the same case. So logos has the article to show that it is the subject of the sentence. And according to the rules of Greek grammar, when the predicate nominative, God or theos in this case, precedes the verb, which it does here in verse 1, then it, can be, it cannot be considered indefinite. Simply put, God the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to write verse 1 of his gospel in exactly the right way to communicate exactly the right truth. So the fact that the article belongs with Lagos and not with God is the only way this could be written to say what it's saying. And the reason for that is, number three, the word and God are not interchangeable. The word, the word Lagos, and God, the word theos, are not interchangeable because of the grammatical construction of this third clause here in verse 1. There are some who wish to say this verse could read the word was a God, or there are some who would say that this verse could say the word was God, or it could say God was the word. Well, first of all, according to the Greek grammar, that couldn't happen because the noun with the definite article, which is the word logos, must serve as the subject of the sentence. If, if this were to be mistranslated, it would lead to Sabellianism. 
Sabellianism, sometimes called modalism, is a heresy which teaches that sometimes God is the Father, and sometimes God is the Son, and sometimes God is the Holy Spirit. This is a non-Trinitarian or anti-Trinitarian belief that teaches that God is not three in one, but rather one who reveals himself in three different modes. And so according to John 1, it says the word was God. That's the only way it could be said without either committing Arianism or without committing Sabellianism. Either way, you're going to get off by not declaring the truth of the nature of God. Maybe a way just to say it, if you're like, Adam, I'm done with the Greek. You've already confused yourself. You've confused me. I'm not with it. I can't do it. Let, let me just say it this way. The Father is God. Jesus is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. You agree? The Father is God. Jesus is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father. Or to say it another way, the Logos who became flesh, that's Jesus, is not the Father, and the Father is not the Logos. So I'm simply trying to say that you can't make God and Jesus be the same when they're two separate persons in the Godhead, and the third person being the Holy Spirit. So the construct of this, and again, I understand if this is the first time you've heard it, it's like, wow, that's really challenging, but I'm, I'm challenging you to look into it. Instead of just saying, went over my head, I'm challenging you to say, get, get a good study Bible, get a good commentary, don't be afraid of beautiful, simple truths. Stand on the foundation of the Word of God. You don't have to be a scholar and a brainiac to figure it out if you just take I don't know, 30 minutes or an hour one day and really think about it and work through verse 1, it's only going to give you a, a, a firmer foundation, a, a more solid confidence, and the ability maybe just to say to a Jehovah's Witness, you know what, I've actually looked at the Greek. And that's not what it says according to the rules of Greek grammar and according to the overtone of the entire Gospel of John and the Bible, Jesus is God. And I'd like to talk to you about that because I believe you're wrong. And not only do I believe you're wrong, I believe that leads to a non-belief in a triune God, which has serious implications. I mean, it's time for us as Christians to be theological. It's time for us to be, have a backbone. I mean, you can't just exist in the world we live in today that's trying to water everything down, saying it's not really important, let's just all be one, let's let love win out. Theology matters, and so let's get it right and there's no apology. You don't have to apologize for being dogmatic about the truth of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Amen? So let's, I'm just saying, let's appreciate the deep and the richness of the theology because what I believe is when your temptation comes to walk away from God, it starts in a text like this. When the temptation comes from you to walk away from your marriage, I believe that's partly tied to the fact that you're forgetting about the beauty of God that you haven't dwelled enough on the Trinity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that you're focusing too much on your problems and on earthly horizontal discussions where we need to spend a little bit more time in the Word of God. And, and you spend a little bit more time in the Word of God, it blows your mind, like in a good way, to where you can be like, wow, I never understood that. Now I understand it better. That makes me want to be a better husband. That makes me want to be a better father. That gives me a greater love for my family and my church just to think about the beauty of who God is in the person of Christ. And then this leads us to our last blank that we'll cover for today, a restatement of this profound truth. That's all that verse 2 is. In case you didn't get verse 1, he says it one more time as a summary and a culmination of everything he tries to say in verse 1. He just simply says, he was in the beginning with God. That he there would be an antecedent to the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. So he's saying here, Jesus was in the beginning with God. It's just a restatement of this truth. This, this is simply trying to make sure the reader understands that Jesus, or the Logos, was in the beginning with God. Now what we're going to do next week is we're going to look at how Jesus is the agent of creation, verse 3. We're going to look at how Jesus is uh, the, the, the light there in verse 4, or the life rather, and then how Jesus is the light at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. But if you'll go all the way to the end, to that take-home section, let me give you just a little bit more application if I can. Number one, does the fact 
that we have seen Jesus as God make you want to fall at his feet and worship him as Lord. There's something about seeing Jesus in all of his divinity that ought to spur us on and motivate us to want to worship him as the Lord of your life. And so no matter what's going on in your life today, a theological message like this, profound truth like this, ought to. if you leave this morning and you're like, man, that was boring. Man, I wish he would have talked about marriage or talked about something else. That was just boring. Then there's something wrong with you. Okay? I'm just being honest. You should have, you know what? I want to know God and all the depth of his riches. And I want to know the person of Christ and understand him like I've never understood him before. I want to understand every verse and every word and every clause because I want to bow at his feet. It's like the second song we sing, Jesus Son of God, how can you get over that? That will transform your marriage. That will transform your relationship with your children. That will transform everything about you because it will conform you more and more into the image of Christ. To know him and to love him and to understand him will bring about in your life true change and personal application. So that's why I'm spending some time on this. And with that, these next two points more to next week's sermon, so we'll close with that. Fair enough? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just spend a little time together on verse 1. A little bit in verse 2, God, I admit that, that maybe it's a little bit hard to understand and comprehend fully in this setting without having uh, you know, the original Greek text in front of us and maybe drawing it up on a chalkboard. But God, we thank you for the word of God. And we thank you that in the beginning was the word. Help us to meditate on that truth today that Jesus always has been and he always will be. And help us to meditate on the fact that and the word was with God. The fact that the son and the father were pointed towards each other having holy conversation from eternity past. And help us to think a little bit about the truth that and the word was God. Just the beauty and the simplicity and the exactness with which you ordained and inspired John to record that very truth in a way that he would not commit any theological error, but rather point to the beauty and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that move our hearts today. May that change our lives today. May that encourage us to sing out today. May that encourage us to, to live with more confidence as we face false teachings and as we discern all the stuff that's out there in the world, God, that we would know we come back to our Bible. And we come back to your truth. And we come back to submit to the authority of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us and gave us life that we could be saved. Thank you for the word. Help us to be forever changed because of these truths. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.